What is up, everyone? On today's episode of El Nino Speaks, I am excited to be joined by Scott Howard. He is a researcher based in Nebraska and the author of the books The Transgender Industrial Complex and The Open Society Playbook. How's it going, man? Uh, it's going great. How's it going with you? Oh, things are going well, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Now, before we start digging into the meat of today's content, could you give my listeners a brief overview of your work and what you do these days? Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, for OPSEC reasons, uh, won't disclose my primary income stream, but uh, primarily on the side, I research and uh, and I write because I have found that that tends to be my passion and a, a gift that I have. And I have this sort of strange singular focus to be able to sit for hours on end reading uh, IRS uh, tax returns and things like that to try to track down who's funding what and all this other stuff. And I actually had a guy uh, contact me a while back. He said, you know, what you do is actually eerily similar to what work for the federal government, where we do uh, tracking down illicit monies as they go around, obviously, uh, they have access to a lot more resources than I do. But he said the way I went about it was actually very similar finding these connections. So, you know, a curious quirk about a lot of what's being done is that there has to be at least superficially uh, a bit of a paper trail so we can identify maybe not the guy behind the guy, so to speak, but we can outline the uh, system as it is functioning insofar as we can figure it out. Because, I mean, I believe that there are probably people behind these people who we probably will will never know unless we're privy to those conversations, but we could see what mechanisms are being used, how, and, and generally to what purpose, which is effectively if we want to object to it for practical purposes, I wouldn't say all we need to know, but uh, a very, very good starting point. Could you give my listeners a brief overview of what the transgender industrial complex entails? Absolutely. So this is a, it's a book that I had I was basically moved to write. I have a, f- a friend of mine who also uh, has written some dissident literature, and he had talked about writing a book on it because he said, you know, there's a lot of talk about it, and there are a lot of people who uh, sort of look at the thing superficially. Uh, you know, Matt Walsh does a has done a good job in the sense of uh, highlighting this issue, but doesn't really get beyond the surface of it. And it's not to you know talk smack about him or anything like that, but once you start to scratch the surface, it's. Uh, it's the kind of thing that if you started vocalizing who and what, it would make you basically radioactive. And, and hence why I uh, try to protect myself as best as I can. As a matter of fact, uh, my first interview um, that I gave on the book for Red Ice, I actually had them disguise my voice. Uh, I was that concerned about people coming after me. And I, di- I did actually receive death threats. I had People from Antifa uh, threatened me and some, some other things like that. So it showed that caution was of the order. A good sign. Right. Absolutely. It means uh, over the target, threatening to kill me and these other things. So, But the genesis of it was that I felt like it sort of came out of nowhere and people were talking about it, but they were only talking about it either on the right as like, look at these cuckoo you know, weirdos or on the left, like your gender is whatever you say it is. And I was like, okay, well... This, to me, is inadequate analysis. So I want to know where does this come from? And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I was able to trace it back conceptually. It's sort of been around for centuries in a very abstract sense, but primarily as an articulated concept, it uh, comes out of the 1930s, uh, the 1920s and the 1930s, primarily through 
a guy named Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, writing in uh, Weimar, Germany. And Hirschfeld and other similar people to him, uh, many of the listeners will recognize as the Frankfurt School, who are responsible for the critical race theory and all this other stuff and the infiltration of psychoanalysis and anthropology and all of these other things that have twisted the way that we view the world now. And so really it owes itself to not singularly Hirschfeld, but he's probably the primary guy. And then branching out, you know, there were other people who were doing work along those lines, like the Mattachine Society and some other uh, people, both in the United States and abroad. Um, But I think that he is probably the uh, closest we can identify to a father figure, uh, if you will, for that ideology. But it really doesn't become deeply something that's pushed really until the uh, probably the last 10 years or so. And actually, as I note in the book, there's this rather seamless handoff between uh, so-called gay marriage and then two weeks later, Bruce Jenner's on the cover of Vanity Fair. So clearly showing, you know, I guess it doesn't necessarily equate to causality, but we can see exactly what uh, systemic steps are being taken um, along those lines. Yeah, all interesting points. A lot of this stuff is very interconnected, and that's what I've gathered from what I've listened to your interviews. There's like a network of groups and individuals behind the scenes that are making this stuff happen. Because I've long argued that in American politics, like political movements, especially those of the culturally leftist persuasion, are funded and supported by some of like the most powerful interest groups in the country and even in the world for that matter. Who would you say are some of the most prominent individuals and institutions promoting transgenderism in the U.S. and the broader West? Yeah, no, but you're absolutely right. It is uh, that that is how we have to think of it in terms of uh, networks, uh, you know, patronage and all these other things. Because if you continue to trace the money, you get the impression that you have all these grassroots organizations all advocating for. Uh, these things. And, and it gives you the idea that, oh, well, all of a sudden there's been a popular upsurge. And as you mentioned, with basically all leftist movements, it's essentially the same thing. Now, for the uh, transgender project, uh, some of the big names would be uh, the John Stryker. The uh, Stryker Medical Technologies is a big name. You would see a lot of groups, a lot of NGOs, uh, which are tied into uh, the power structure. And of course, there is significant governmental support. Now, what's interesting is that from the United States, though the NGO factor is a very important one, the state does tend to sponsor and push it very, very heavily. And the U.S. State Department, USAID, a lot of these organizations which push this stuff abroad uh, as well are very focused on pushing it domestically. And the NGO factor you find much more pronounced abroad. Um, there are some governments that have been very uh, vociferous about getting on board with this project, but you tend to find a lot more uh, of the so-called uh, charities and NGOs abroad pushing this stuff. But it, it's, uh, you have uh, all sorts of these. I mean, there are probably hundreds that go through there. Now, what's, uh, the, you also find in the United States, especially through the university system, um, the University of San Francisco is probably the preeminent incubator of this, but you'll see it at a lot of other institutions as well. It connects to a guy named Mark Benioff, who is, I think he's the CEO or the founder, perhaps both. I, I can't remember the exact uh, connection, but he's 
I believe he's the founder of Salesforce. You know, he's involved with the World Economic Forum and all these other people. Um, and he's also involved in the transhumanist thing. And there's actually a significant overlap between the two. Um, but the, the University of California at San Francisco is, is a major one. Uh, UCLA is another one. So what we have here is the, the university system and increasingly the teachers unions, both in the United States and Canada. And we also see it to a lesser extent in other places like Australia are being weaponized to push this stuff. You'll see a whole host of these sort of NGO, you know, open society type organizations pushing this stuff. Plus the, like I said, the U.S. government and, uh, universities as well. What is the connection with, uh, transgenderism and transhumanism? I find that interesting. Yeah, it is very fascinating. There's a guy named Ray Kurzweil, who's a lot of people know as sort of the singularity guy. And he has this avatar uh, of like a 25-year-old girl who he like LARPs online with and a, a ton of like Marquis Rothblatt, uh, as I mentioned, Benioff, a lot of these people, they all, for whatever reason, well, I'll say the reason, uh, they all seem to coalesce around both transgenderism and transhumanism. And the idea is effectively that we are not limited by uh, our bodies and we can be whatever we want to be. And, and dovetailing with Hirschfeld, who was a noted sexologist uh, and almost certainly pedophile, we see a lot of this weird kink factor that goes into it as well. As a matter of fact, kink.com is a funder of some transgender causes. And we see a lot of this kind of bizarre grooming sexuality thing that goes with it as well. That's extremely uh, uncomfortable for people to realize. And there's a heavy grooming component, particularly through social media and a lot of these other things, which basically tries to take confused adolescents uh, and convince them that they are in fact, transgender. So the idea, though, is there's this intersection of uh, sort of the medical industrial complex, the education system, uh, technology in general, and social media. And they all kind of meet at the same nexus. And there's this idea of we, we are not limited to or defined by our, our bodies. We can, for the transhumanists, transcend them. And so there's this idea that, you know, we're sort of endlessly malleable uh, social creatures, biological creatures, whatever. They very much push this idea of um, the blank slate, which we know is, of course, not true. You know, there's a very heavy encoded aspect to our biology. But they, they you know, building on over a century of this critical theory, uh, they have basically washed this idea from most people's minds that, you know, there are some encoded things, not to say that there isn't, you know, a nurture component by, by any means, but this idea that we could be endlessly customizable, changeable, uh, anything on demand, uh, not limited to these things. So all those things, it's a little bit complicated, but they all kind of meet together in this weird area of transgenderism. And that's where at the end of the book, in the conclusion, I basically open up the end of the transgender industrial complex into a lot of these other fields to illustrate to people that the people who are involved in the transgenderism thing are not just involved in the transgenderism thing. It's this network, and this network has a whole ideology behind it uh, and a whole series of aims that it's trying to accomplish, which I think generally revolve around the idea that they're building some kind of, I don't want to say machine, but some sort of improvement upon our reality using uh, or transcending, to use their word, uh, biology where we will either merge with this machine or in fact uh, 
for some of the transhumanists actually give birth to the the artificial intelligence, which will basically render humans obsolete. And so they hope that you know they'll be able to merge with it in some capacity. But it's a very odd uh, worldview. The vast majority of people do not share, except there's so much power and influence coming out of this group of people. Anyone could look at the uh, superficially the power the social media wields over people on a daily basis and, and can conclude that. But, it, you know, it goes obviously beyond and deeper. And I would say that that really is the, is the connection to it. It's this idea that uh, we can be more, but not more in a spiritual sense, more, uh, although it does have all the trappings of, of a religion, which I, I note in my, uh, my latest book, which is called The Plot Against Humanity, that it does have a religious feel to it, but it is in essence materialist. It's very much there's a reason that they attack, say, Christianity, because to them, this is anathema to what they're trying to create. From my bird's eye view of like things, I've noticed that the most of the conservative space and the broader approved conservative movement will cover the topic of transgenderism, but usually in the most superficial and milquetoast of terms. How does your analysis of this subject differ from the mainstream conservative perspective? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very, very milquetoast the way they cover it. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned Matt Walsh and, and the Daily Wire and these types of folks, and they basically just point at it and say, like, look at the kooky libs, or they'll say, we don't like this, but, you know, we can't use the state to protect our beliefs, let alone enforce. And it's mostly just very much in the space of, uh, you know, just sort of looking at it and saying, well, we don't like this, but, you know, we just want to be left alone. And I understand that. I do too. But there's no, unfortunately, there's no push beyond this very superficial analysis of like, oh, it, it's a zany, you know, thing. And it, it is zany and it is an object of mockery, but it's, it's horribly destructive. I mean, I believe obviously, I, I don't know if I want to say all, but, but darn near all most of the mainstream conservative establishment, you know, is, is on the payroll. So they're only going to offer token resistance to this. And they might appeal to certain things, but it's the same way that, you know, the so-called moral majority was weaponized by, you know, neoliberals basically for decades to accomplish their ends by, they gave sort of token nod to the concerns of these people, but they never did anything about it. And it's the same way now as, uh, you know, and the power of the state to come in and override any objections is absolutely present. Uh, and in fact, the, the left and the people who push this are willing to use force. You know, think of the drag queen story hour with snipers on the roof. I mean, it's not a meme that, that, that is something that happens. And so what we see is instead of accurately saying this is a, an, an artificial creation, which is being pushed upon people, and here's who's doing it. It's more just, well, blue-haired liberals, you know, with their crazy genders and stuff. And they never push beyond that point and say, okay, well, where is it coming from? Who is pushing this? Um, you know, you might see Tucker Carlson talking about this kind of thing. That's why I say maybe not all, because he does sometimes bring some good things to light. There are other people as well who actually push a little bit further, uh, Glenn Beck, I like quite a bit. So some of these people do push beyond that and make some of these connections. But by and large, 
the establishment is stuck in this sort of defensive crouch. And if you play defense long enough, you will lose. I mean, it's tactics 101. So the problem is that the people who are getting behind these people who are in this defensive crouch, so to speak, they are not aware that most of the people who are leading their movement are beating a slow retreat. That's the problem. Yeah, but I, yeah, I agree with that as well. Eventually, like the, um, it goes to show that, like the maxim that often the best defense is offense. Like you eventually have to go on offense to really push back against these people because it's not sufficient to just hold your ground. You're going to have to retake back like territory that you previously lost. Now, based on your extensive studies of this topic, what do you think is the end game for the boosters of transgenderism? Well, I would say that eventually it actually ties into a lot of different agendas that are at play here because eventually what they want are people who don't have an identity beyond essentially what they're given. So the idea is you have no family to speak of. You have no deep roots of any kind. It could be your ethnicity. It could be your religion. It could be your familial ties. And basically you're just some kind of a plug and play widget or a consumer. And of course that makes you extremely easy to control and exploit for whatever the purposes may end up being. Um, and I think to some degree it's a little bit obscure as far as exactly what they want to do. But from where I sit, I see that it appears to be that they want people plugged into this kind of, as the World Economic Forum talks about it, the internet of all things. So the idea is essentially we would, we and our physical environment would be indistinguishable from this digital infrastructure that's being created to some purposes. And I think that that would not allow one to be truly independent. So uh, some people have called it like neo-feudalism or serfdom. And I think that that's actually fairly accurate. It's a means of control, but far more invasive than anything anyone could ever imagine because we're talking about hacking biology. And again, it's not a coincidence that the medical industrial complex is so heavily invested in transgenderism. A lot of people became very concerned about the way in which the vaccines were pushed. And this is something I talk about in, in, uh, in the new book as well. And actually, that's one instance where we did see conservatives start to push back against overreach and say, look, enough, I'm not doing this. A lot of people left their jobs. There was a lot of pushback. And actually, you know, you can look at the vaccine, I would say, in a lot of ways as a proxy for ideological beliefs. So there was something to that. Now, was there anything in the vaccine necessarily? I mean, that's a discussion for another time. I do think it's suspect that it was pushed so hard and particular kinds Ultimately, what we're seeing here, though, is I think a beta test of compliance and whether or not, and I think it's questionable, and I'm a little bit ambivalent, to be honest with you, about the contents and some of these other things. Uh, but I think unlike the idea that it's perfectly harmless and unlike the idea that it's designed to just kill people, I think the idea somewhere is in in the middle, which goes into the transgenderism thing where they want to be able to manipulate people and even modify people, and in some cases, without their knowing. And there's a lot of kind of pseudo-kooky stuff we could get into as far as harmonics and all this other stuff. But the, suffice it to say, the U.S. government has been experimenting with 
manipulative techniques, both biological and non, for decades, for a very, very long time. And so whether that's, you know, the use of propaganda or the use of direct intervention, I think that that's, that's the case. So the idea is if you read the literature from these people, they, they do have this idea of an internet of all things where everything would be connected. Nothing would be outside of their control, their ability to monitor, perhaps even modify. Fascinating stuff to say the least. Now, I'm a big believer in the idea that pattern recognition is a sign of political intelligence. Those who can pick up on patterns are expressing like some of like the highest forms of political intelligence, while those who struggle with this tend to be, put it bluntly, operating on mongoloid tier of political analysis. And what consistent patterns have you noticed about the people and organizations who promote transgenderism? Am I allowed to speak totally freely? I would assume so. <laughs> yes. Well, the vast majority of them are Jewish. And uh, I hate to do this because I always feel like a broken record, but uh, it, there's a preponderance of evidence that, that that tends to be the case. And even as I quote pretty extensively in uh, from their own words, I took a page right out of uh, Kevin McDonald's playbook and basically quoted people in their own words as far as exactly what they were saying and doing. And uh, the common theme was that there was something inbuilt in Judaism not just the Tikkun Olam, but uh, in its very DNA that lends itself to pushing for these causes. And so the pattern recognition, which is, of course, something that uh, the artist formerly known as Kanye West has gotten in a lot of hot water for recently, one notices these things. And they notice the preponderance of particular individuals who are the levers of power and are uh, sticking very tightly to their in-group. And so there's, there's an ideological component to it. Absolutely. There's a a religio-ethnic component to it as well. You know, there has always been an antagonism between Judaism and Christianity. And I think that what's an important point to note here, and actually this is something that I've heard uh, Nick Fuentes say, is that when we're talking about these Jewish people, what we're talking about are people who are Talmudic Jews. So these are not sort of your classical biblical Jews, because you see your, you know, your more traditional Jewish people also under scorn and disdain. And I think that this is something that Alex Jones had brought up as, well, why would the Jewish people say in Israel, why would Israel have such draconian measures about, say, the vaccine? Well, if the vaccine's trying to kill people, well, the point is that it's it's not. There are side effects for people with weakened immune systems and other complicating factors which would kill them potentially or leave them immunocompromised. And one could speculate that perhaps there is an immunosuppressive effect that's there to make one receptive to uh, potentially further interventions. But the point is that it's not not to kill people. The point is that it's either a proxy of compliance and I shouldn't say either or, and or laying the groundwork for some other sort of modification. But what one notices is that basically on the right, there's the Zionist, the Israel Zionist lobby, which a lot of people are very familiar with where you have people like Josh Hawley saying, you know, I will be carried out of here in a body bag on behalf of Israel. You know, when has anyone ever said that about America? Never, uh, right? Well, not not recently anyway. So you have the sort of Zionist lobby on the right, and then the left is this sort of Tikkun Olam, uh, modify the world stuff, uh, which is very Talmudic as well. So it's it's almost like a 
internecine warfare between two factions of Jews almost, because you see a lot of leftist Jews sort of criticize Zionism and Israel, but they're also very much on board with a lot of this other stuff. So essentially America is just, uh, and, and I don't even know that they're a hundred percent at odds or loggerheads, I would say in the last, I'm sure that there would be enough common ground uh, against the Goyim in their view to close ranks. But uh, there are some disagreements in any case. But I think pattern recognition is absolutely uh, vital, right? I mean, we very recently had 33% of the Supreme Court was Jewish, where the country has one or 2%, perhaps, you know, the numbers of the billionaires, all these other things. I mean, it's, it's to notice the pattern, of course, you become accused of being anti-Semitic. And of course, I've, I've received this criticism quite a bit. I have never said anything untoward about Jews. I have only quoted what they have said and pointed out patterns. You know, and for people like the Anti-Defamation League, this is a problem because they don't want to be called out. And we know that the Anti-Defamation League has for decades been spying on political opponents and pushing the destruction of ideological foes. So, and, and some of them Jews, by the way. So there are people who are outside of this scope. And so, you know, people will often get into this, well, it's not all. And it's like, of course, it's not all. Anyone with two brain cells to rub together understands that it's not all, but you could still identify patterns as, as you had said and note, okay, well, why is there a preponderance of Jews? Like everyone that I have mentioned, pretty much Mark Benioff, Martin Rothblatt, Magnus Hirschfeld, they're all Jewish. Quote, Rachel Levine, right? Who's their like health secretary or whatever. I mean, it's grotesque. And the other thing, too, is one one would note that it's not just, you know, that's something uh, Kanye West pointed out is, you know, you've got uh, the Emmanuel, Rahm Emanuel next to Obama and you've got Jared Kushner next to Trump. That's absolutely right. That's how these things go. And there's a lot of indirect influence where people say, well, you know, we've never had a Jewish president or we've never done this, this, this. Well, the point is that it's points of influence. And this is a way that is done. And if you talk about the entertainment industry and propaganda, or we talk about finance, as we've seen, well, he goes by Ye now, as, as Ye has, has experienced, right, with all these things. We've actually seen this for a while now of debanking people and denying them access to finances. And this is another aspect which ties into transhumanism and the idea of digitization of everything is if you don't have outside means to acquire funds, and to purchase food, to pay property taxes, to do these other things, you're screwed. So you could completely destroy anyone who is outside of the agenda in such an environment, and you can track and trace everything that they do. So that, that I think, you know, has a lot to do. And so you'll see that a concentration of different ideological subsets within different areas. But I, th- I think pattern wise, I think if you're really looking at this, you have to understand that this is not a country I believe it's, it's missed, the quote is misattributed to, uh, Voltaire. And I think it's actually Kevin Alfred Strom, but the idea of to see who rules over you, see who you cannot criticize. Well, is the idea that there are these white guys out here lording over the manor? Well, no, right? You can beat on white guys all day. You can beat on Christians all day in the media, whatever. And nobody says a thing, right? But if you happen to say, oh, there are a lot of Jewish people in finance and even a benign comment like that is all of a sudden, grounds for anti-Semitism. I mean, it's really perverse and it's gaslighting 101 too, is, you know, Jews can come out and say, you know, hey, we're doing really well and blah, 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 blah. Then you could echo exactly what they say, you know, in the transgender industrial complex or the open society playbook. I just use their own words. And all of a sudden it's considered an anti-Semitic text. In fact, 
the transgender industrial complex was uh, banned off of Amazon uh, within a couple of weeks because of an explicit effort of, um, I think, I forget what her name is, but it was a Jewish woman, actually, and, and who said, oh, my goodness, he said the quiet part out loud. It's like, well, you're damn right I did. Because as you said, we're not, this isn't mongoloid tier shit. We're trying to actually tell people what's going on. Here, here, man. Now, let's shift the discussion to your other work, the Open Society Playbook. Could you tell my audience more about this book? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a book that uh, actually was very timely in how it came out because I, I certainly didn't anticipate the war in Ukraine, but actually I focused very heavily on NATO and the effort of the Open Society Foundations in uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, globally, to be sure, but uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, because that seemed to be an area of focus. Uh, and lo and behold, that became a flashpoint. And so that book really gets into the ins and outs of how do these foundations and how does the U.S. government, uh, through plausible deniability, go into countries like the Ukraine, cleave them off from, say, the Russian sphere of influence, and try to bring them on board to the American. Now, the obvious point here, in light of what I've just said, is that Zelensky, right, is Jewish and was, it, had, there are a lot of untoward contacts in the Ukraine that we could point to, right, Burisma and a lot of other things. So there's very obvious connections there, but it goes a lot deeper than that. And it includes the Open Society Foundations, it includes USAID, it includes the, a lot of the post-Soviet infrastructure but even before that, like the whole Cold War idea, like for the American establishment, that's never really gone away. A good friend of mine, Tom Kaczynski, talks about this, the idea that you'd have the two great frontier Christian nations in the United States and Russia allying with each other is terrifying for the establishment. They're obviously very anti-Christian, and it's to their benefit to take really the two – now, granted, the United States governmentally and societally, I would say at this point, is Babylon – but the people of America are generally very deeply Christian still. And it would be to their benefit in the same way that World War I and World War II detonated all of this infrastructure and allowed for this sort of globalist type project to come into fruition. A third world war, which I had originally entitled my latest book, uh, World War III. But in any case, it, it, this book is about how these NGOs go into these areas and they push all of this, the stuff that we're familiar with, the transgenderism and all these other things. I mean, they had a pride parade in Serbia just after they deposed Milosevic that was protected by, you know, military force because the people did not want this. They recognized that this is a path to, dare I say, degeneracy. And of course it is, right? But these countries, uh, particularly Eastern Europe and in the Russian sphere, are generally very socially conservative, and they are absolutely opposed in the majority to the kinds of crap that our government and these different institutions are pushing, you know, Hollywood and the education system, everything else. They understand this. And even countries like China have taken limiting the factor, have taken action to limit the amount of exposure that their people have to this kind of filth that's being, you know, uh, pumped out across the globe. And this is the, the U.S. is like the master of this, this soft power. Now, of course, the, the U.S., when I speak of this, I speak of, of course, the government, the power structure, the people at odds, uh, at large, rather, are also being targeted by these NGOs, these organizations. So it's used domestically and it's used abroad. It's used against our own allies. It's used against our enemies. It's used against everyone. So in the same way that 
you know, the idea of traditional empire was detonated and nationalism was used against empire in the 20th century. Now we see nationalism as something that is bad and globalism as the new thing that would come in. Now, they tried this after World War I with the League of Nations and nobody took. World War II, it became the victory was much more comprehensive and that enabled a lot of this infrastructure to take place. And a lot of people have Uh, I would say compellingly argued that in some ways the Soviet Union may have been controlled opposition, particularly post-Stalin. I would not say Stalin was, but post-Stalin as sort of a uh, playing the heel, so to speak, on the global stage to allow a lot of this uh, infrastructure to be built up. The Open Society Playbook really deals with a lot of this idea of the globalism. It takes, you know, whereas the transgender industrial complex talks about this one issue in great detail, but also connects it more broadly, this one basically looks at that big picture and shows, okay, how does a country like South Africa go from a space program, a nuclear program, a first world country into a carjacking every 20 minutes or whatever it is? The Open Society Foundations, George Soros has come out and said that South Africa is the perfect case study for, quote, opening it up, the so-called rainbow nation. So that was their trial run for the open society. So if we want to say that that was where they started testing out this idea, then one look no further than South Africa and see, okay, well, what does South Africa look like now? What is the consequence of these policies? Well, it's just complete destruction of the host society. And it's, a, it's basically a, a war of all against all. Now, yeah, you mentioned the open society and we just talked a lot about in the broader dissident space. Could you explain what it is and what type of policies it pursues across the West? Yeah, absolutely. So it is, uh, you know, dovetailing with the transgender thing. If you looked at, for example, the top U.S.-based funders for trans issues, I just pulled up two-year span, which is 2011 to 2012. The Open Society Foundation is actually foundations, because there's a lot of them, number one by a very large margin. So what we see here is that they are absolutely central to both the transgender thing and the idea of all of these different concepts that are being pushed abroad. So, and domestically, of course. So what we see is it's the gay marriage thing. It's the transgender thing. It's, you know, the idea of abortions on demand, but also not having uh, sovereignty on other areas. It's educating people in such a way that it's, it's indoctrination. Basically, the whole host of all the leftist talking points, like Soros has said himself that he, and I don't know that this is true, that he says he doesn't work with USAID or the US government, but he said, essentially, the Open Society Foundations is ideologically, in, I'm paraphrasing, in line with the US State Department. So they're, they're kind of indistinguishable, quite frankly. So basically, where you see it could be traditional Islam, it could be traditional conservatism, it could be Christianity, right? So they, they go after even a lot of these, uh, all traditional cultures, okay? So if you look at not long before, for example, the Ukraine invasion by Russia, which a lot of people think was preemptive, and I wouldn't dispute that, there was an aborted color revolution in Kazakhstan a couple months before that. And we see one now going on in Iran. Um, that the thing obviously glows, right? Because they're, they're in Iran, they're using the, the point of women's liberation. 
right? The same way they did in the 1920s in a lot of the Western countries. And it's not really women's liberation that's being pushed for here. It's the ability to undermine a theocratic regime, which is representing the traditional values of its people and in its country. So that is essentially what we see. There's this color revolution model, which is where the U.S. State Department and the different NGOs, usually open society or some uh, combination thereof. There are also other elements that go along with this. Uh, American allies, Great Britain is uh, notorious for this, and their Chatham House is another major NGO that does a lot of the same things as open society and USAID. There are countries that are viewed as roadblocks to the agenda. So the very first color revolution insofar as uh, the pattern has been established, which is essentially you have money and uh, activists who are kind of like advisors in the same way that like the U.S. was sending military advisors to Vietnam before the actual war. You have like activist advisors who go in and you have all this money that comes into these very, very fringe groups with not very many people. They build up this infrastructure and they build up what appears to be a groundswell of popular support for democracy or women's rights or whatever. The Arab Spring, I mentioned 2011 to 2012, right? The Arab Spring comes to mind, used through predominantly social media. And we know social media, these Facebooks and whatnot, they're intermediaries. They don't just let people put raw stuff up there. They ban, I'm, I'm banned, permaban from Twitter, for example, <laughs> just like Amazon. But anyway, they use this pattern. They, they it appears that there's all of a sudden a groundswell of support for these different issues. Really, it's a very small uh, vocal minority people who have institutional backing, and they basically try to remove the power structure so that the country can be so-called opened up. And uh, I believe it was 1998 in Slovakia was the first one, was like the trial run. Um, the most famous, of course, is is the fallout from the Yugoslav Civil War and the um, deposing of Milosevic, who mysteriously died in jail in The Hague, and uh, the cleaving off of Kosovo from traditional Serb territory. Um, so that whole area has been uh, very heavily under the influence of this project. Uh, and of course, the Ukraine, right? Uh, 2014, um, the, the coup that essentially split most of Ukraine off into more of the Western orbit, where some of the easterly regions remained looking to Russia, and the encroachment of NATO. So all these things represent the expansion of this project, and that's what the Open Society playbook is is about doing, is saying, okay, well, here is how this new form of empire spreads and conquers new territories that it adds uh, to this empire. And you know, there are questions about Russia, certainly, but they appear to be, uh, along with China and Iran, the major bulwarks against this project. And I say appear to be because there's a lot of double dealing, certainly that goes on, particularly in terms of uh, China. And I do often wonder, is this sort of a 1984 type thing where, you know, you've got Oceania always being at war with East Asia, like how, how, and to what degree are these people kind of on board with it? And it's just stage acting, I can't say. But what we can see, again, is that all of these countries, particularly where we've seen flashpoints of conflict on the borderlands, like think of Syria, uh, think of Georgia, even Lebanon, that kind of ties into the Zionist thing because they're basically bombing Lebanon incessantly. You know, all these areas, Iraq, of course, 
Iraq was referenced, uh, I believe George W. Bush called it like the Purple Revolution or something like that. So you can view the whole uh, debacle in Iraq as a color revolution. And they have been attempting these basically incessantly for the last quarter century. And uh, some of the countries, uh, far-sighted countries, which we might think of as being somewhat backwater-ish, have actually banned these NGOs from operating in their country. You know, your uh, countries like Uzbekistan and a lot of the, you know, Central Asian uh, former Soviet republics have basically said, Chatham House, you know, Open Society Foundations, they, you cannot operate in this country. You're out. They ban them completely from the country. But I think that's very smart because they recognize what these institutions are trying to do in terms of soft power uh, and leverage and networking to try to sway them over to what we, I guess we could call the Western orbit. But it's not really Western in the sense that it's not Western culture. It's a cabal, you could say, uh, of very powerful people who are using the infrastructure that's available to them to further their aims. Right on. Yeah, that's what I've gathered over my years of studying this subject as well when it comes to this transnational network of NGOs. What they have noticed from like a big picture perspective, just looking back at history, traditionally like the U.S. would sponsor coups and other forms of subversion abroad through its intelligence agencies such as like the CIA, and this was most apparent throughout the Cold War. However, things have changed since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, as seen, as you mentioned, with the color revolutions. Would you say that the U.S. intelligence community has effectively outsourced this kind of activity to the NGO industrial complex? Yeah, I mean, I would say to a large extent. I wouldn't say completely. Um, I think that there is one aspect that I reference is uh, Cohen is his name. He was involved with Big Saw and Google, effectively running around the Middle East uh, right around the time that the uh, the color revolutions were happening. So I think that there is absolutely a large degree of that. Um, I think to another area or arena I would consider would be uh, so-called culture. And so the way they kind of push it, so it, it's NGOs, but it's also a lot of this so-called content that's pushed out there, which contains subversive messages and all of these kinds of things. And so I think that, that that's an element to it. I think absolutely the CIA and and the other intelligence community are, are engaged in espionage and undermining still. But I, I think that that's a very accurate claim to say that to a large extent, they have outsourced a lot of this in such a way that will give them plausible deniability. And uh, that's, that's actually something Soros has acknowledged is that the NGOs can go places with plausible deniability that, uh, you know, this U.S. State Department cannot. So from when you've studied on this subject, what's the overarching goal of Soros' foundations in terms of like their vision for changing the world? Well, it appears to be that they very much are absolutely on board with this sort of Tikkun Olam uh, world where anything goes as long as it's not true sort of thing. To what extent are they invested in the transhumanist aspect? Uh, probably quite a bit, but it's not overt in the same way it is for, say, the World Economic Forum, uh, which is an interesting one because it ties a lot of the old ruling families of Europe with the sort of neo-Judaic uh, establishment, uh, as well as a lot of the Silicon Valley stuff. It's an interesting nexus. But they're, uh, I would say, 
at minimum, the Open Society Foundations want something that looks like South Africa, but with way more, you know, people waving dildos around everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. it yeah, it is like um, the exportation of global degeneracy. And it's also pretty interesting, too, the point you raised about the kind of like old money, like the WEF, because I've noticed that, it, that that type of project strikes me as much more European in nature, whereas other like so-called like globalist projects tend to be more like Anglo-American that fit more with like British and by extension now the U.S., strategy of divide and rule to prevent like a, a unified Europe because one thing that the Russo-Ukrainian conflict has, uh, has illustrated and has put to rest is that there's not going to be a rapprochement between Germany and Russia. That's one thing that geopolitical tinkerers in London and Washington do not want to see happen, especially like in London. And another thing too that I'm starting to notice with the Russo-Ukrainian conflict is that Europe is now like firmly in like the u.s orbit like in terms of like military and like economic cooperation they're completely like subservient i mean they were already largely occupied but with this entire energy crisis and all of that like now europe is practically attached at the hip of like the u.s yeah no i, I would absolutely agree with that and i think you know that's it's very much accomplished the uh effect there and i think you're right i think you know in germany in the same way that uh, no one ever wanted to see, you know, a Germany uh, or sorry, an America Russia alliance. The idea of a Germany uh, Russia alliance is probably at least as terrifying. So you could absolutely see that uh, there. I think that a lot of the European countries are politically not as invested in this project, but you can see economically, as you mentioned, particularly with the energy crisis, that keeping them in the sort of Anglo orbit is absolutely essential. And it's a difficult thing because a lot of these pieces that we see moving around, like, again, I kind of wonder how much of it is stage managed, how much of it is legitimate fault lines breaking where there actually, there is legitimate acrimony between, you know, Russia and the United States and uh, some of these other countries. And so, again, I say at minimum with some of these things, I think at minimum, there are competing interests some of which we're privy to, some of which were were less so, which are driving a lot of the jockeying that we're currently seeing. And I think that that uh, the idea that you would have Europe basically as just a, a continental vassal to, you know, City of London, you know, United States Defense Department slash you know Wall Street, uh, I think is is a very astute observation. I think this is absolutely true. So this type of content tend to go over like the average person's heads but nevertheless the internet has made otherwise like analysis of like deep politics much more accessible to the masses in your view do you see like the work that you and other people on the so-called dissident right do begin to gain traction in the mainstream you know actually i do which i think is fantastic i think that there is a slow percolation that's happening i think that uh the fact that you have people like um, Alex Jones and Glenn Beck talking about the World Economic Forum, uh, talking about a lot of the medical tyranny of the last couple of years, and even uh, key points of influence. I think, you know, Tucker Carlson obviously plays it uh, very much down the middle, but uh, I would say certainly has some feelers out for what's kind of trickling out of the dissident right. 
And then you start seeing people like now that Nick Fuentes has, has joined up with some of these other guys and, and has now roped uh, Ye in, or maybe Ye reached out to, I don't, I don't know how they linked up, but um, this is actually a very powerful force. And the more sort of whining that you see from the left, the ADL, these other organizations that, oh, he's talking about this and this, and he's meeting with Trump. I mean, Trump has tens of millions of people who love him. And so even the, the fact that there is a conversation between these two guys, and you have world-renowned people who are basically one step removed or uh, from the dissident right, or maybe even directly related to it, I think it's filtering a lot of people to these conversations. And they're starting to hear that, okay, there isn't this unhinged far-right extremist. These are people who are just giving information about what's happening. And obviously, you know, the Overton window has shifted so far to the left that maybe saying marriage is between a man and a woman sounds extreme, but I don't take my cues from what TV says I should. I take my cues because I'm an unapologetic Christian. So that, for me, that's where my morality is. And obviously, for this project, this is a problem for these people because A, they don't want, as you mentioned, any kind of pattern recognition, and B, they don't want people with a higher loyalty to anything slash anyone but themselves. And so people like us, make ourselves targets because we speak out against us and find what they're doing absolutely abhorrent. So I do think the internet's a double-edged sword. As I mentioned, it's been a radically effective tool for some of the really dark things uh, regarding the transgender thing and also a lot of ideological poisoning. But I think it's also allowed for a large amount of uh, voices that would not have been heard uh, to be heard. And so I think that it's it's a double-edged sword that's really on us to continue to capitalize on it. And, uh, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to Antelope Hill, who has published all three of my books now. The Transgender Industrial Complex was the first original title that they published, and they put really put their necks on the line to back that horse, so to speak, and put it out there. And I mean, these guys are just, if the listeners go and they look at these these books, the cover design, the artwork, I mean, it's the it, it is some of the best cover design I have to give a shout out to, uh, she goes by Swifty that does the cover art, some of the best cover design I have ever seen. And so these are extremely high quality uh, texts that are coming out, not just contents, but the way they look. And so I think that what's what's happening is, obviously, the transgender industrial complex has continued. It's had the, the Streisand effect where it's been extremely successful despite being banned off Amazon. And this enables people to get a hold on this and see, okay, and my writing style, like I will say, it has gotten some criticism because I tend to be very list heavy and I put a lot of information in there. Maybe some of it should be saved for appendices and all this. I, I understand that, of course. But what I'm meaning to do is basically show an exhaustive detail that I'm not making blanket generalizations, that there are major and minor funders and players who can be pointed out. Their relationships with each other can be highlighted. And these people have names and they're pushing an agenda that we find objectionable. So you should be able to understand what the, the network is that exists and how they go about doing these things. And that way, if you oppose what's happening, instead of just sort of pointing and saying, you know, the kooky liberals, you could say, okay, well, actually, why is the, the U.S. State Department funding this? Or why are the supposed, I mean, Susan, Susan Komen is the name of one of the charities that heavily found, uh, funds transgender causes. It's nominally a breast cancer charity. So if you're donating to this organization thinking it's going to fighting breast cancer for breast cancer research, actually they're funneling a huge chunk of that money to mastectomies for 
uh, so-called trans, I don't know what it would be, even trans men or trans women, but women who want to become men or whatever. So it's disgusting and it's a lie and it absolutely must be called out. But to go back to the earlier question, I think that that's why Twitter had to come down so hard on the censorship because uh, the dissident right was basically making a joke out of it, uh, out of the, the normie and, and the left talking points by being extremely effective through mimetic anesthetic warfare and for making compelling points that people found interesting. And whether or not Trump is controlled opposition, which could go either way, I'm sort of ambivalent uh, about that one as well, the energies behind Trump were legitimate. And you could say to a very large degree, uh, the energies of that election where it brought together a lot of different people who might not have been exactly on the same page, but were unhappy with the status quo and were willing to work together towards something that looked a lot more positive. It was fun and irreverent, but also a little bit more traditional in a sense, uh, and also just was a rejection of all this rank degeneracy was something that I think is there and something that I think we have seen could be a very powerful force. Oh, yeah. Before we depart, tell my audience about your latest book. Oh, absolutely. So the latest book is called The Plot Against Humanity, and this is a book that deals with specifically the transhuman aspect, and also revisits to an extent the medical industrial complex that I discuss quite a bit in the transgender industrial complex. So what it deals with is the treatment of the global population as effectively guinea pigs uh, for different potential biological interventions with the emphasis on this idea of the internet of all things that I have mentioned. So the idea that everything will become digitized, monitored, and we may indeed even be connected into, from a biological perspective, this network, uh, which would allow for the modification and monitoring of basically everything. It deals with that and basically how, to a large extent, what happened during the COVID years was an acceleration of plans that have been in place for quite some time and actually deals pretty extensively with the World Economic Forum, and which, as you mentioned, is more of a European sort of model. And it's it's no coincidence that, of course, this model tends to look a lot more, more like neo-feudalism. And of course, it isn't to say that the US government and the Silicon Valley people and all these people aren't on board with it, but it truly is a, a hijacking of, I shouldn't say hijacking, actually, I should say what, what it, groups like the Open Society Foundations uh, propagate seems to be uh, laying the groundwork for what comes next, which is the sort of transhumanist thing. So as I mentioned earlier uh, in the program, the idea that you would destroy people's identity and loyalties is sort of the end result of this squishy, neoliberal, sort of consumerist social media thing, at which point people are fairly malleable. And that enables what I would say is probably the next step in the project. When people are atomized, they don't have roots, they don't really have much of an identity to speak of. Even if they object to things, then, for example, let's say they rely so heavily on electricity. Well, we see with things like the energy crisis, you, you put the screws to people a little bit and things they might otherwise not go on board with, suddenly they feel like if it maybe it doesn't necessarily look attractive, but it looks a lot better. 
And so the idea is then you sort of turn the screws on people a little bit and you get them to start thinking, well, you know, maybe this isn't such a bad idea. I mean, there's a reason everything is trying to be electric, 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 right? They they don't want fossil fuels. It has nothing to do with the environment. It has everything to do with the fact that it's very easy to just hit the switch. And all of these things must be connected with this uh, infrastructure that's in play, uh, be it physical infrastructure and ideological infrastructure. So what I view basically uh, the Open Society Foundations type organizations as doing is basically putting the foundation down through all this sort of leftoid stuff, which basically then organizations like the World Economic Forum and these transhumanists can build upon by saying, well, we too care about the environment. We too care about uh, gender expression, you know, the sustainability, the sustainable development goals and all this other stuff. And it all fits very neatly hand in glove. And as you notice, the some of the most vociferous advocates for all these different things tend to be on, like, let's say your average, uh, I don't know, upper middle class liberal. They they probably have a, a everyone is welcome here sign in their yard. Uh, they probably have a Ukrainian flag. So they're on board with this, right? So it's not that difficult to say, well, you like the environment too, right? You know, and here's this, they hate you, you know, if you have anything out of the ordinary, uh, you know, you're a threat because you haven't gotten your 12th booster and all this other shit. So they're on board with all this stuff already. All they have to do is just add the next thing into, into play and boom, here you are. So I, I think that, uh, you know, the transhumanist thing I view as kind of the, this real, I actually, you know, at the risk of sounding kind of woo woo, I do think it can, it is a legitimate existential threat and something that really as I, as the title would say, the plot against humanity really jeopardizes our, our humanity. And I, I think it's a very scary thing uh, that these people are trying to do because they're messing around with powers and energies that they don't understand, really. And in trying to play God, you know, the potential for something very catastrophic, I think, could happen. And so people, it's like uh, this idea of CRISPR. It's been likened to going in with a, with a buzzsaw, not with a scalpel. You know, you start modifying things and there's a domino effect of lots of other bad things happening. So these people like to think we're so advanced with our, you know, with, with where we're at. Uh, we really don't know anything in the grand scheme of things. And I think a true wisdom would acknowledge that and would stop trying to, uh, you know, play God with creating artificial intelligence and genetic modification. And you know, I talk about in the book, like they're growing, I think it was in Japan, they're like growing human ears on rats and stuff like this. I mean, this is, uh, it, it's madness. But the idea is eventually it all ties into this idea of the endlessly customizable person. And for most of the transhumanists, they do want to either live forever or extend their lifespans indefinitely. And they view basically biotech as the key to doing that. And so they are not above, however, using people either in an experimental fashion or as cannon fodder to get to this position. All right. Let's wind this bad boy down. It's Scott. Thank you so much for coming on to El Nino Speak. It was an absolute pleasure. Where are the best places for my audience to follow your content? Well, unfortunately, I've been basically banned from pretty much every every platform. If you want to get the books, you could go to antelopehillpublishing.com and pick those up. If you want to email me directly, I'm at uh, Scott. Too hot, Howard at protonmail.com, little uh, wrestling reference there. And uh, effectively, that's it at this point. I haven't, I've been permabanned from Twitter and 
Occasionally, I do post some articles on Occidental Observer, but unfortunately, that's really it at this juncture until maybe I can get a burner phone and try to get on Twitter again or something. Scott Howard, everyone, and make sure to follow his work wherever you can. And to my audience, thank you so much for your generous attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.